We're going to consider the word of the Lord this evening as we find it in Psalm 131. Very short psalm, and yet it's a psalm that touches on some of the most basic and fundamental themes of the scripture. Psalm 131. Hear now the word of the Lord. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Congregation, beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, many years ago when I was in seminary, I was in a homiletics class, a preaching class, and one of the students got up and presented a sermon, and it was a good sermon, I thought. He had done his homework, he had done his exegesis, and he had he had presented the sermon clearly, and, and I thought it was a good sermon. But then the professor made an observation to this student because it was clear to the professor that the student was preaching to the professor and perhaps preaching for a good grade. And he made an observation that I still remember because he said to the student, he said, you know, when you get up in church Sunday morning and preach, don't forget that there is a heartache in every pew. And that little advice kind of stuck with me because the older I get, I realize that the professor was right. If I were to say this evening, well now, if any of you have never experienced any problems in your life. If any of you have never lost a loved one, a father or mother, grandfather, grandparent, if any of you have never experienced loneliness or loss or lost a spouse, a wife or a husband or a child or a grandchild, or you've never experienced sickness or never been in the hospital or never experienced disappointment, Please stand up. I don't think there would be any that would stand up because that is the way it is in life. That's just the way it is. And we see in the scriptures that the psalmist understood that that is the way it is as well. Indeed, in the preceding psalm, Psalm 130, we find the psalmist saying, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. The psalmist knew what trouble was. In fact, this is a whole series of psalms that, that really reflect many of the experiences of the life of the godly, many of the experiences of life. Indeed, interestingly enough, when our Lord Jesus Christ was here on earth, over 50% of the time when he quoted from the Old Testament and would say, it is written, 
Over 50% of the time, the Lord quoted from the Psalms, from the songbook of the Bible. He quoted from the Psalms. And so in Psalm 20 to Psalm 134, we have a series of Psalms, a group of Psalms that are called Psalms of Ascent. That is to say, people would sing these Psalms as they would be going up to the temple as they would be going up on the, uh, the holy days, uh, they would sing these psalms and join together in song as they would go up to worship in the Lord's house. Now this psalm is labeled as a psalm of David. And it's interesting that some commentators say it was probably written when David had been anointed by Samuel to be king and actually was taken from the fields and ended up in the court of King Saul and was his musician and then suddenly Saul in a fit of jealous rage because he knew that David would be the next in line for the throne threw his spear at David. And so David begins this song by saying, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor are my eyes haughty. And indeed, his heart could have been proud. For this was a time in which David was really riding high. He had been a shepherd boy, and he had been taken from the fields and come to the court of King Saul. He had defeated Goliath, and won the victory over the Philistines. And the, and the women of Israel were saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. Indeed, it was a time in which he could have succumbed to pride. But we see a level of maturity, of spiritual maturity in the psalmist here. And he begins by talking about the fact that he has not surrendered himself to pride. But there are other things that the psalm tells us too. Themes that we see in the Bible. And the second thing he notes in the, in the psalm is that in the second part of verse 1, he talks about humility. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. And so he talks about the matter of humility in the godly life. In the third verse, he notes that he has stilled his and quieted his soul like a weaned child with its mother. The end product of the godly life, the goal of the godly life, is contentment. And you cannot be content if you are proud. And so David speaks of a godly contentment here, a contentment like a child with its mother. And finally, he addresses the matter of trust. Israel, put your hope in the Lord 
both now and forever. And so we're going to consider these four things this evening. First, pride. Secondly, the matter of humility. Thirdly, the matter of contentment in the godly life. And last of all, trust, the matter of trust. Contentment leads to trust. First of all, the psalmist understood that we live our lives in the presence of God. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't look down on others, says the psalmist. As I noted, this past, this psalm may have been written, according to some commentators, during this time when David was anointed king and it seemed as if everything was falling apart. He's anointed king, he defeats the Philistines, he kills Goliath, he has the adulation of the people, he's brought to the king's court, and suddenly in an instant he's living like a fugitive. We get a hint of what life must have been like uh, in Psalm 27 for David at this period in his life. In Psalm 27, when he speaks, that the, speaks of the Lord being his light and his salvation, and he says, Whom shall I fear? When my enemies are around me, of whom shall I be afraid? And then in the psalm, it goes on and it ends, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. But in the middle of the psalm, there's an interesting little phrase there. It says, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. And it's not difficult to imagine that that's precisely what happened with David. The armies of Saul came over to Jessa and, and wanted to know where their son was, and maybe they ransacked his house. At one point, David had to take his parents and, and bring them to the land of the Philistines for their own safety. And he felt abandoned by everyone. And yet, we see in these psalms the wonderful assurance. He could have been proud. He could have said, well, why is God doing this to me? I mean, I, I, I didn't seek to be king. I didn't want to be king. I didn't spend $50 million campaigning to be king. God appointed me king, and now I'm living like a fugitive. He could have been proud, and he could have given up to pride and arrogance. Taken from the fields an anointed king, but he shows remarkable restraint and spiritual maturity. He realizes, he realizes his own unworthiness. What do I deserve from God? Ultimately, what all of us deserve is the wrath of God. Apart from Christ, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve an eternity in hell. And yet he knows the greatness of God's grace. The writer of Proverbs says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty heart before a fall. Apart from God's grace, we deserve nothing. David understood that. O oh Lord, my life is, 
My eyes are not raised up. I, I don't look on others. I know that I live my life before you, and I know who I am. You know, Calvin once observed in the opening chapters of the Institutes that all true knowledge consists of two things, a knowledge of ourselves and a knowledge of God. And he's absolutely right. David understood who he was. And he also understood the greatness and the holiness of God. And so he says in the opening line, I have not given myself up to pride. I don't take pride in who I am or how great I am because I know who I am, a sinner saved by grace. But secondly, we find that he says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Now, what does he mean there? When we surrender our pride, then we can discover how we are to live and walk in humility of spirit. Notice what he says, I do not occupy myself, I do not, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Now what does that mean? That David just sits back and accepts life? That David doesn't look around him uh, at the world around? I mean, there are all kinds of things in this world that are marvelous, that are wonderful. Things that we discover every day. Is that what he's saying? Well, I don't look around at this world. I don't concern myself with what this world is about or what this creation is all about. Indeed, the creation is marvelous. The Bible says that, that life is marvelous, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. It says that, that when we look around us, as we ought to, we ought not to simply look around us to discover knowledge for its own sake, but when we look around us, we ought to see the wonderful handiwork of the Creator. So when we look at this world, we should look at it through the spectacles of Scripture. He's not decrying here modern science. Fine, look at the world. All kinds of marvelous things in the world. Watching a TV show the other day, or a program the other day, about butterflies. Some butterflies fly all the way from the Arctic Circle down to the Sahara Desert. Extraordinary, extraordinary. This world is full of marvels, marvels. Astronomers, should not should look at the planets and the stars. Scientists should not should look at this creation because it is full of mystery. The psalmist is not suggesting for a moment that we don't try and discover things in the world around us. But we must do so in humility of spirit. 
But he's not referring to that here. He's referring to something that sometimes is far more marvelous and sometimes things that are too amazing and wonderful for us because he is concerned about the way God works in our lives. The way God works in our lives is indeed sometimes marvelous in our sight. He's thinking about something more profound than the mysteries of creation. And that is the mysterious mystery of God's sovereign grace. You know, the canons of Dort have a little phrase in there that say, that says that when a person comes to salvation, it is a miracle every bit as great as the creation itself or the dead coming to life. And when we see how God works in our lives, we stand amazed sometimes. We stand amazed. But that doesn't mean we don't have questions. Because every Christian at some point or another must wonder how God is moving in his or her life. You know, I was reflecting on that in the scriptures, and everyone, everyone in the scriptures, when we look at their lives, face that kind of mystery, don't they? I mean, I just made a quick list here. Noah, a hundred years building the ark. Is God going to send the flood? When is it coming? Abraham, the Lord says, Abraham, I want you to take your son. Isaac, this is the child of promise. This is the one through whom the Messiah is to come. I want you to sacrifice him. Moses. Moses, a man who, who was the meekest of men who had a speech impediment, spoke with a stutter. God comes and he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh's court and tell him, let my people go. And Moses wonders, Lord, why me? Why me? Or you look at Job. Job gets caught in this drama between God and Satan. And the Lord blesses him greatly and suddenly everything is removed. He removes all his possessions. He removes, he removes his, his family is taken away. His children are killed. He ends up sitting by the garbage dump covered in boils. His friends turn against him. And, and what does Job do? You know, the friends had God figured out. Ultimately, Job's wife had God figured out. She thought, if this is the way God treats you, if this is the way your God treats you, curse him and die. 
And yet we read in all this, Job, sin not. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though he slay me, yet will I serve him. You get Naomi. Her husband and family moved to the land of of Moab. She loses her husband and her two sons. Ends up being a widow with two daughter-in-laws. Returns to Bethlehem. What does she say to the people of Bethlehem? They hardly recognize her. She's had such a hard life. She said, don't call me Naomi, a name which means pleasant. Call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Elijah goes to the court of Ahab with the word of the Lord. Ends up being chased by Ahab and he sits under a broom tree and he says, Lord, you may as well take my life because there's nobody left. Nobody left. And God has to say, Elijah, 7,000 people have not bowed the knee to Baal. Isaiah, man of unclean lips, dwells in a people of, among a people of unclean lips. Jeremiah is thrown into a cistern, left to die, later taken to Egypt. In the New Testament, Peter denies the Lord. Thomas doubts the resurrection. James is martyred. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is afflicted with this thorn in the flesh. Lord, Take it, remove it. Three times he prays. Why do I have this? Does God answer the question? No, he says, Paul, my strength is going to be demonstrated in your weakness. My grace is sufficient. Or you see his discussion in Romans 9 to 11. He'd give up his own salvation for the sake of his brethren according to the flesh. Why aren't the Jews hearing the gospel? Why aren't they responding to it in faith? Why are they rejecting the Messiah? He struggles with that. Why? You see, people of God, there are a lot of whys in our life. But they must be dealt with in humility. And and that really is very often not the problem. Because when we face adversity, and when we face trials, and when we face troubles, we can move only two directions. We can be drawn closer to God or we can be driven away from God. And the problem very often is not that people ask why, but they ask how. In other words, they they haven't given up their pride. And so they say, how can God do this to me? How can God treat me this way? After all I've done, I go to church, I do this, I do that, I give to charity. How can God treat me this way? You see, then you end up like Job's wife. 
People stop going to church, they get bitter, and they, they dwell on their own grief. They don't look forward to the hope that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. They dwell on the grief, they turn in on themselves, and it becomes a kind of idolatry. Becoming self-absorbed. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow? And one has to be careful of that. One has to be very careful of that. So that we must understand that there are some things in life we don't fully grasp. And faith is living with the problems. I remember a man saying to me once, when speaking of his parents, both of them were killed, I believe, when he was in high school in an automobile accident. Thirty years later, he said, you know, I still don't understand it. I still don't understand it. Those are the kinds of questions in life that the psalmist says we cannot dwell on. I do not concern myself with great mysteries or things too wonderful for me. I don't surrender my life to these whys, but rather I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother like a weaned child is my soul within me. So that the psalmist looks to the Lord to be content. You see, contentment is only found in Christ. Only found in Christ. When we look to the Lord, we realize that it's only there that we may find the goal of the Christian life. That the Lord is the one who gives us contentment. If you want to find contentment in the things of this world, you know you're going to leave them all behind. It is only in Christ that we may find contentment. We see that already in the very beginning of Christ's life. huh? He's presented in the temple on the eighth day. Simeon takes the baby in his arms and he says, Lord, let us now thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. The Apostle Paul understood that. You know, he, he worried about the salvation of the Jews. And, and, and he never did answer some of the questions he raises. But at the end, at the end, he says, you know, they have had all these blessings. They've had the covenants. They've had the prophets. They've had the whole history of salvation and, and, and revealed to them over the years. And then when the Messiah comes, they reject Christ. And here's his response. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. You see, the Apostle Paul understood that. Augustine understood it. Our hearts are restless, O Lord, full of discontent, until they find their rest in thee. And the writers of the Hagelberg Catechism understood it. What is your only comfort? What gives you security? What is the source of your contentment? That in life and in death, I may belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so at the end of the psalm, we find the psalmist saying the result of contentment. And that is trust. You know, it's not a contentment that results in laziness or indifference, but a contentment that results in a vibrant trust in the Lord. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. You see, that is what true contentment is all about. Hoping in the Lord, looking forward to the great salvation, not only that he has provided, but that is coming when we shall be in his presence And as the songwriter, as the psalmist said, we shall be satisfied. And so let us pray that the Lord may quiet troubled hearts by his marvelous grace and grant us the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which passes understanding. Amen. Oh, Lord, our God, we are so often beset with a restlessness. Teach us, O God, to quiet our hearts, to look to you, and to realize that it is only in the Lord Jesus Christ that we may experience that peace, your peace, which passes understanding. And so, O God, in the midst of the restlessness of this life, may we, by your grace, find our rest in you. For Jesus' sake, amen.